following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, uh, today is Palm Sunday. <laughs> Paisley loves Palm Sunday. And uh, it's Palm Sunday despite the fact that nowhere in today's text does the word palm happen to appear, interestingly enough. Um, Throughout Lent, we've been using the scripture texts that are assigned by the Revised Common Lectionary, which, if you don't know, is just a rotation of scripture passages for each Sunday in the year. It goes on a three-year cycle. And so days like Palm Sunday and Easter and uh, Christmas and so forth have the same story, generally, uh, assigned, but from different parts of the Bible. And in this case, although it is Palm Sunday, which um, in some versions of the story involves people waving palms and palm leaves and putting them down on the ground. Uh, This particular one doesn't have that, which is kind of interesting. Uh, But the story is essentially the same. It's just a minor detail that happens to be different. And so I want to jump right into the story from the Gospel of Luke. It's from Luke chapter 19. Now, if you are a, a person who likes to have a visual association, you're welcome to open your Bibles to Luke 19. If you're an auditory person, you can just listen Uh, If you don't have a Bible and want to follow along, the red Bibles are all around here, and the page number is um, indicated on the screen, page 854. So we're going to read Luke 19, 28 through 40. After he had said this, and this is Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find there tied a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. I always imagine them not quite sure that's going to (laughs) work. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. Now, I'm going to pause here for a minute because uh, this is one of the most fun stories in all of Scripture. It's It's the Jerusalem donkey heist. And um, it's, in this case, it's a cult. But uh, I'm, not, I'm actually not going to talk about it today, but I just have to tip my hat to it because it is such a uh, hilarious story. If you imagine yourself as the characters in that story, I just, every, every time this comes up, I'm like, boy, that would, that would not be my favorite thing to have to, do, to be one of the guys sent to steal the donkey. Um, and you should all go read J.K. Chesterton's poem, The Donkey, which is the Palm Sunday poem, which I, for the first time in years, probably will not read today. So the Jerusalem donkey heist is uh, something you can enjoy on your own. I'm going to move on, and we'll want to focus on what happens next, and then actually what happens after that, too. So you notice that they, they sit Jesus on this colt, and he goes off. Verse 36, as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And here, in other versions of this story, would be the palm leaves. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. So, what's happening here as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the colt, on the donkey, is that the people are expressing their expectation for what Jesus, they think, ought to be. And they do this using these words, indicated in verse 38 here, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, which may mean nothing or very little to you or to me, but in that context, which was very aware of their, uh, the people's scriptures and their historical past, was very significant because what they were doing is quoting from Psalm 118. The reason they were quoting from Psalm 118 is because they were, uh, they were believing that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised anointed king from the line of King David, who was, we think, the author of Psalm 118. Now, it may not surprise you to learn, Psalm 118 is the other text that's assigned by the Revised Common Lectionary for today. So, before we even go any deeper, I want to look at Psalm 118. Now, the lectionary does this kind of um, frustrating thing sometimes. Sometimes we're thankful for it, sometimes it's frustrating, where they give you a couple verses and then they skip some stuff and then they give you some more verses. Um, And... Frankly, I, th- I think sometimes their motivations in skipping it are not always pure. <laughs> uh, because often what they skip is um, kind of like some, some not pretty words or some, some warfare kind of stuff. Um, and if you, if you uh, on your own time, perhaps read the rest of Psalm 118 that's not included in today's reading, you might just find some language that maybe they're trying to whitewash a little bit. All right? We'll get to it, though. Uh, not the language, but the whitewashing part. All right. Psalm 118, 1 and 2, and then it jumps to 19 through 29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Here's the part where the people were quoting. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. I want to focus for a minute on verse 22 in this song. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Now, probably 
in David's writing of this psalm, he's referring to himself right? um, as the conquering king of God's people, uh, representing God's people and ruling over them, having conquered all of their enemies. He had uh, not an easy path to the throne, and uh, some people wanted to reject him, and yet he rose to the throne and took uh, leadership and uh, rule over Israel. And so he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. What is a cornerstone? Most of us don't know because we don't... Why would we, right? Dan, you're an architect. You probably know what a cornerstone is, right? No. Well, <coughs> allow me, therefore, to, uh, to butcher the understanding of what a cornerstone is. <laughs> um, if Angela was here, I'd start talking about science, and she'd be going, Mm-mm. no. <laughs> uh, you set a cornerstone when you build something. And it has to be true and straight on all sides because it is by that cornerstone that you will get straight walls for the rest of the structure. Right? The cornerstone matters because it's the one that sets the lines for the entire building. Uh, now, we, of course, uh, have other ways of making things straight nowadays, and uh, even if we were relying on, only on the stone itself, we could um, mill it in a factory so that it was perfect. But, of course, at this time, cornerstones were not necessarily perfect. They had to get really, really close, and a builder would say, mm, nope, not this one, nope, not this one. They were actually quite a bit heavier than that, so he couldn't just probably cast them aside. But, you know, he would wait and find the one that was the most perfect, that would be the chief cornerstone, the, mo- the, the place where you start the building. Everything that you do following that depends on that first decision, that first step, that first piece, the chief cornerstone. And David is saying, the stone that the builders rejected, guess what? The chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes, he says. Because, of course, when good things happen to me, it's <laughs> marvelous in everybody's eyes. Now, we Christians uh, apply this text not to David, but to Jesus. And so when the people appropriate this psalm as he enters into Jerusalem, we say, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is, in fact, the stone that the builders rejected. All the religious leaders and teachers and the Pharisees and the scribes, they rejected him, but he became the chief cornerstone by which and against which and around which God is going to do all of his work in the world. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. We do that not only for uh, all the reasons that we do as Christians because we believe in Jesus and who he is and all that, but because Jesus himself actually appropriates this imagery um, not, not long after this event, as a matter of fact, in his teaching in the temple, which we'll get to in a minute. Right. So the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law, all the religious authorities rejected him but that stone that was rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Right? So Jesus rides into Jerusalem. All the people lay down their coats and they wave the palm leaves, which were symbols of, of military victory, by the way. And they sh- shout Hosanna. They say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, etc., etc. Uh, he's a great king. The end, right? But no. What happens next? This man rode a donkey into Jerusalem and everyone cheered for him, but what happens next will shock you. (laughs) 
I love making Bible stories into clickbait headlines. It's like a little hobby of mine. (laughs) 17 reasons Jesus isn't who you thought he was. Number seven will blow your mind. (laughs) Let me tell you what comes next in Luke's gospel. Uh, Right after this event of him coming in and being uh, lauded by all the people. He gets to the edge of the city and he looks out over the city and he weeps for Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And he goes on to say, your enemies will crush you and that sort of thing. Uh, Okay, not quite what we were thinking, Jesus. Um, Remember Psalm 118. Then you have the account of Jesus cleansing the temple, right? Which doesn't mean that he came in uh, on his day off to wash (laughs) the walls or the floors. No. He cleanses it of the exploitation uh, that was present in there because of what the religious leaders were doing. And we could go into this in great detail, but the gist of it is that there there was an exchange of money that needed to happen for people to pay the temple tax or to buy the animals that they were going to sacrifice because you can't buy uh, sacrifice animals with uh, Roman coins. You have to use Jewish currency, and so we need to make an exchange for you. Oh, guess what? We're the only bank here, and the exchange rate is not very favorable to you. Also, if you're rich, you probably brought a cow with you or something like that. But if you're poor, you need to buy a bird here. Uh, It turns out the price on birds just went up. And so the poorest of the people uh, came to to worship and were being exploited and oppressed by the religious authorities who uh, ought to have been the ones who were shepherding them into an experience of God. And so Jesus goes in and he literally flips the tables over. And he drives out the animals with a whip. Um, which is uh, not a recommended way to win favor with the religious authorities in the holy city of Jerusalem. Then he proceeds to teach in the temple over the course of the next few days. And uh, it just keeps getting worse and worse. Every time he says something, they get angrier with him. His authority is questioned, and he in turn denounces all these religious leaders, including, as I mentioned a minute ago, using the verse, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. He tells them, what do you think that means anyway? (laughs) He once again predicts the destruction of the temple and in fact the fall of Jerusalem, the city itself. He observes Passover with his disciples after which he is betrayed by one of them and arrested. His top disciple denies any knowledge of him three times. Then he is tried, convicted, beaten, dragged out of the holy city where he is executed. And in the course of that last bit of the story, it seems very likely that the very people who were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, last weekend are now shouting, crucify him, this weekend. So it's safe to say that the people did not get the Messiah they wanted. They quoted a psalm of David as Jesus entered the city because they wanted a violent conqueror who would overturn an oppressive Roman government and make Jerusalem great again, 
who would return them to the glory that they knew under King David. They wanted to go back to the way it was. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. Instead, they got a Messiah who disrespected religious authority, who upset the status quo, who overturned the systems that benefited many of them, and who capped it all off by dying an embarrassing death outside the holy city. So let me ask you this. Which Messiah are you following? Which Messiah are you waiting for with expectation? And I say both of those things, following and waiting for, because we can um, fall into the ditch on either side of the road here. We can sometimes retroactively make the same mistake as the people of Jerusalem trying to shoehorn Jesus as he was into our picture of what a king should be like. And then there's another entire stream of Christendom that's waiting for his return not because he will wipe away every tear from every eye or because he will finally restore the world to its intended peaceful state, but no, so that he will come and wipe out all the baddies and put us into a place of glory, the faithful ones. In other words, people who are waiting for Jesus to return and do all the things that he made it very clear he was not interested in doing when he came into Jerusalem the first time. So, which Messiah are you following? Which one are you waiting for? Now, before you answer, because this is one of those occasions where it would be pretty easy to just give the right answer. It's, it's, not, it's not a complicated question. It's a leading question, actually. But before you answer it, I think we should all think long and hard about it. It's a dangerous world out there. Do you really want a Messiah who tells you to love ISIS, to pray for them? Or would you kind of prefer Messiah that you can put on the banner that you raise when you go out to war against them? In other words, do you want King David or do you want King Jesus? It's an election season, as we've already pointed out this morning. Do you want a Messiah who will help you enact your religious beliefs? Do you want to elect your favorite candidate, not only for president, but for Messiah? Or do you want one who says, actually, my kingdom is not even of this world? Staying in the realm of politics, against my better judgment for a moment, it's also tax season. Do you really want a Messiah who says, give to the empire its taxes? After all, it's Caesar's head on the coin. Ah, but it's not just 
whose image is on the coin but whose inscription. And the inscription, Caesar is Lord, that one's not going to fly because you have to give to Caesar what's Caesar, but you have to give to God what is God's. It's Caesar's head, but it's God's name. So do you want Lord Caesar or do you want Lord Jesus? It's also church budget season. Once again, we've already covered this. We were praying for the right things this morning. Do you want a Messiah who will rubber stamp all of our ideas about how to spend money making these worship gatherings happen? Or do you want one who might just flip the tables over while we're counting our money and point out to us that we are not necessarily living up to our calling to embrace all people, including the poor? Do you want a Messiah who reinforces patriarchal boundaries around gender, walling off women from ministry and all sorts of minorities from full participation in God's kingdom? Or do you want the one who is so radically inclusive that the religious authorities become so angry they could spit? Do you want a Messiah who the world sees as a winner? One you can be proud of? Or one who will ultimately become so embarrassing to you that you deny three times that you've ever even met him? Before he dies in defeat. Do you want a Messiah who rides a war horse or one who rides a donkey? One who was born in a palace or a smelly barn? You see, it's not just the Pharisees who reject Jesus as their cornerstone. We all reject Jesus as our cornerstone. We call him Lord, Lord. We sing it out loud. But when it comes time to line up the walls of our life, we look at the stone of Jesus and decide it is too misshapen, too impractical, too radical, too restrictive, or too permissive, and we reject it. We reject him. We want a cornerstone with harder edges. Every time we seek to associate our faith with political influence, every time we respond to violence against us with violence against someone else, every time we exclude the poor, every time we gate the table, every time we draw lines that keep people away from God's kingdom, every time we fail to offer forgiveness for those who've sinned against us, we have failed to line ourselves up to Him. 
we've rejected him as our cornerstone. And yet, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, whether we like it or not. It's already set at the corner of the foundation. Our choice isn't whether or not he's the cornerstone. Our choice is whether or not we want to build his building or build some other building. So I ask you again, which Messiah are you following? Which Messiah are you waiting for? And however you answer, are you sure? Do you demonstrate it with your life? Do we demonstrate it in our shared life together? Let's pray together. Oh God, we are like the crowd in Jerusalem. Praising Jesus' name one minute. Calling for His crucifixion the next. Arguing with Him every moment in between. Help us to see that what you are doing is all founded on Jesus as the cornerstone. Convict us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray, of the times when we have insisted on our own way, of the times when we have failed to live up to that which Jesus calls us to. Forgive us, instruct us, and call us to something more. May we be builders of your kingdom, placing our stones not wherever we want, but precisely where Jesus has indicated, following his lines, his shape. and resting all of our work on the foundation that he laid. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the hard lines of conviction that come when we, place, when we try to place ourselves against the example that Jesus set can be painful and difficult. And we should not move too quickly to a place of comfort. That having been said, the grace that he offers is extended to each one of us again and again and again because it's not the sort of thing you can do once and be all set any more than you can eat one meal and be full for the rest of your life. And so each week we come in response to the word of God, to the table of the word, the table of the Lord. I invite each of you now who would say that you are following Jesus in this place, who would come to the meal that he lays out to come to the table of communion, receive his body and his blood represented in the bread 
and in the cup. Take it as food for your souls, for the ongoing nourishment that comes from the grace he offers. And take it as an act of solidarity, of communion with each other, with all of your brothers and sisters, all of your siblings in Christ, and your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents in him who have taken this sacrament for the entire history of our faith. If you are here as an observer and do not uh, consider yourself a Christian or are still trying to figure things out, we certainly welcome you and don't want you to feel awkward if you decide not to take communion. It's perfectly appropriate to sit and pray and think or reflect. You can come and receive prayer uh, regardless of your religious affiliation. There's lots of ways to respond. uh, And as always, I would encourage each of you to respond however the Spirit may be speaking to you in your life right now. Let's continue to worship him at the table and in song. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.